Let's pray. Father God, speak to us now through your word. Lord, we long to see Christ. Our hope is one day we will see his face. Our certain hope is that we will see him and be made like him. Now, by faith, you call us to hear. So as we hear this morning, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. By faith, we might look upon Christ, believe in him that we might have life, be conformed to his image that you might be glorified in us, Lord, we pray for your glory to be displayed in us as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That great fool, Satan, just will not stop. Here in our passage this morning, we see yet another attack on Christ's church. Satan's throwing everything he has against the church. Satan hates the church. He hates God. He'll do anything he can to try and hinder God's plan and destroy his people. Satan's a fool. His whole plan has been doomed from the start. He's waging war against the infinite, omnipotent, eternal creator of all things. He's waging war against his own creator. He's a fool but he's crafty and he's persistent and he's powerful. First Peter calls him uh, uh, prowling about like a roaming lion. Like a skilled general, he's launching a multi-pronged attack in Acts. He's attacking from the outside. We've seen that in chapters 3 through 5 with persecution, threats, and eventually we'll see murder. He's attacking from the inside. He's sent hypocrites into the church into their membership, trying to infect the church with sin and selfishness, knowing that it'll spread like yeast in a lump of dough. Soon, in Acts, we'll see him start attacking the doctrine, the teaching of the church. But this morning, we see him using another tactic. He's trying to pit members of the Jerusalem church against one another. He's using a good and godly thing, caring for widows as an opportunity to create division. Satan's hoping that creating a small problem between two groups will lead to much bigger problems. But once again, we see Christ and his church prevail. That's what we see over and over again in this book of Acts. The church prevails. God the Father's plan for his church cannot be thwarted. Christ's lordship over it may be tested, but never overthrown, and the Spirit's work through the Word cannot be stopped. Here in Acts 6, the church prevails over potential division. Here in Acts 6, the church prevails over potential division. 
We'll see the problem arise in verses 1 and 2, the solution in verses 3 through 6, and then the result in verse 7. Look again at 1 and 2 with me. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned together the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So this young church in Jerusalem is growing numerically. The signs performed by the apostles, their teaching, their preaching of the gospel, and the actual witness of the community itself was causing people to to flood into it. God's working. He's drawing his people to himself through the word and the witness of the community. They're caring for one another's needs. And the Christian widows, a particularly needy group at this time in Jerusalem, the Christian widows, who were totally unable to provide for themselves, were being served food every day. But even this good work of mercy was used by Satan to create problems, opportunities for sin. We see that there's already in the church a bit of diversity. It's entirely Jewish, so it's made up of either Abraham's physical offspring or people, proselytes, who have come into the Jewish community, who have been converted into the Jewish community. So the church right now is entirely Jewish, but we see two different kinds of Jews here. Hellenists, which is just Greek-speaking Jews, who probably grew up outside of Israel, and Hebrews, which would have been Aramaic-speaking Jews, born and raised in the Promised Land. So you have Hellenists and Hebrews. I am Italian. My great-great-grandparents came through Ellis Island from Italy to New Jersey. So if I went back to Italy, I could say that I'm Italian. I'm, I'm one of them. But if I went back, I would speak another language. I would have a, a bit of a different culture. And I'd probably start hanging out with other Italian-Americans who have moved back to Italy. If that were the case, I would be like one of the Hellenists. So we have two groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. This little bit of diversity in the church is only going to grow, we'll see, throughout Acts. Soon God-fearing Gentiles will be brought into the church, then barbarians, and one day even Americans. The diversity is only going to grow. So if Satan can get in the cracks now, the greater diversity will lead to greater and greater division. He's sowing seeds of division anywhere he can find. He's using the growth of the church and the charity of the church to sow seeds of division. Look how Luke introduces the problem in verse 1. A complaint arose, he says. A complaint arose. The Hellenists are complaining that their widows are being neglected. They thought, whether legitimately or not, they perceived that the Greek-speaking widows weren't getting the same things that everyone else was getting, that the other widows were getting. Most likely, their complaint was just. The cultural and language division between the two groups was leading one group of widows to be mistreated. That's a great sin. Deuteronomy and 1 Timothy both warn against the mistreatment of widows. But the sin of complaining, grumbling, 
can be just as destructive as prejudice. It's grumbling, after all, that leads to the judgment of the wilderness generation in numbers. So one sin is leading to another. Satan's plan's working. Soon the groups will hate each other and the church will divide. Division, disunity, is one of the greatest threats to the church, to any church. It's a threat to any group, actually. It leads to civil war in countries. It wreaks havoc on families. It keeps companies from thriving and making a profit. We might not have Jewish or Greek widows here at Millwood, but we do have different opinions about politics, cultural differences, disagreements about minor theological points, different parenting styles, music selection, children's youth and women's ministry preferences. There are so many ways that we can disagree with one another. And each of them is an opportunity for Satan to cause division. Every time we think more highly of ourselves and our opinions than our brother or sister here, Satan has an opportunity to divide. Every time we take an issue that's a matter of conscience and make it a matter of law, Satan has an opportunity to divide. We can look at something as silly as the way someone dresses or something uh, like their hairstyle to more important matters like the school someone sends their kids to, the way they spend their money. We can automatically assume that those things are sin. We can even question that person's salvation. Every time we do that, Satan has an opportunity to divide us as a church. We want to avoid that kind of division. We should be seeking peace and unity. It's a good thing, peace and unity. We, Millwood Baptist Church, ought to be striving for that so that we can continue gathering, as we said at the beginning of the morning, week in and week out, every Sunday. I love hearing about the history of this church. Paige and I are still relatively new here, and it's fun learning about the history from some of the older members who have been around for almost the entirety of this church's existence. I love hearing stories about the church's origins, major milestones, pastoral successions, and beloved members who've come and gone. It makes sense that we want to keep this good thing going. It'd be sad if we ever saw this church divide or even be destroyed because of disagreement. It'd be sad to part from friends and memories. It'd be sad to no longer see one another Sunday after Sunday, see babies born and grow, hear about life updates, and pray for one another. But there's a much deeper motive for maintaining unity in this church. I want to appeal to you that history and friendship aren't enough to motivate the type of unity that we'll need to withstand attacks from Satan. We need to be motivated by the glory of God. We need to be motivated by the glory of God for the unity and preservation of this church. God is glorious. He has a perfect glory, and He doesn't need us to add to His glory. But we have been made and remade to reveal His glory, to display His glorious grace, His worthiness, His perfection to all the rest of creation. 
the chief end of man, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism famously says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, how has God revealed His glory, His weightiness, His supreme worthiness? How has God revealed His glory? And, and how do we glorify Him? The answer is in Christ. In Christ and in Christ alone do we see God's glory fully and truly and rightly displayed. Hebrews 1 says that He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The beginning of the Gospel of John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, that is John and the apostles, have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But it's not merely the incarnation, the Word becoming flesh, coming into the world. It's not merely the incarnation that reveals the glory of God. It's specifically the cross that reveals the glory of God. After all, it's not until Jesus is going to his death in the Gospel of John that he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. God's glory is most fully and most clearly displayed in the death and resurrection of Christ. It's there in his death where he pays the penalty for sin. It's there lifted up, bleeding on a Roman cross, where the perfect, innocent Son of God takes the place of his people, guilty sinners like you and like me. It's there on the cross, not commanding an army, not sitting on an earthly throne, but on the cross where Jesus bears the wrath of God. It's there where we see the infinite holiness and justice of God and the infinite mercy of God meet. And it's at the empty tomb where God's righteousness is seen. God heard the cries of his son and didn't leave him in the tomb. In Christ's resurrection, God's power and his purpose of the gospel is displayed. Christ died to pay for our sins, and he rose victorious over death, that we might have life, eternal life, in and with Christ forever. The good news of the gospel is that Christ died and rose again for sinners, for everyone who would repent means to turn from your sin and trust in Christ and in Christ alone for your righteousness, for your right standing before God. Christ reconciled a people to God forever. The church, this church, is made up of people who have been reconciled to God, united to Christ. Christ is the head. The church is the body. Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. Christ is the cornerstone. The church is the temple. Christ is the first fruits. The church is the rest of the harvest. Over and over again, the Bible describes Christ's work as a unifying, uniting work. Ephesians 2 might be the most clear place to go for this. There we see Christ take a people who were separated from God, and he unites them to God. We see vertical reconciliation. 
second half of chapter 2 of Ephesians, we see Christ take a people alienated from one another, hostile to one another, and bring them together in and around and under himself. And it's for that reason what Christ has actually accomplished for the glory of God. It's for that reason that disunity in the church, any kind of division, grieves God. It offends Him. It lies about His work and His glory and His worthiness. Unity in the church glorifies God. When Jews and Greeks, when Russians and Ukrainians, when blacks and whites can gather and put aside differences and worship together, God's glorified and His power in the gospel is rightly displayed. When we're unified, we confess that Christ is more important than any differences we might have. Christ prays for the unity of the church before He goes to the cross because it's there, it's the unity of the church that displays God's glory. It's the unity of the church that shows the world God's power and worthiness. It's love for one another, Jesus says, that shows the world we're His disciples. It's supernatural love. Love that crosses personal preferences or cultural divides that shows the world who Christ is and what He's accomplished. When we let division creep into the church, we begin to lie to the world about God. We begin to say, God's not powerful enough to overcome this difference I have with this person. We begin to say, Christ isn't as important to me as this other thing I'm willing to divide over. We say, my preference is actually more important than that person that Christ died for. God's chosen to display His glory and His wisdom through the church, the body of diverse people who have been reconciled to Him and to one another. That's what Ephesians 3.10 says. It's His chosen instrument, the church is, to display His wisdom to the world. While Christ is seated at the Father's right hand, as the head, the church, His visible body, displays visibly, not just through hearing, but actually through seeing now. Before we see Christ in glory, we in the world can see Christ as the body gathered. And this is why Satan attacks the church. He hates God. He hates His glory. And here, the church is where Satan continues to wage his war on God. And so we must prepare for this constant attack on the unity of this church. We have to prepare by desiring God's glory in our lives individually and in our life together as a church. We have to take the offensive. We can't just sit around and wait for unity to, to happen. So pursue unity for the sake of God's glory. Forgive your brothers and sisters in this church for the sake of our witness to the world. When tempted to grumble or complain about someone else in this church, when tempted to criticize, when tempted to overlook someone, intentionally miss an opportunity to serve them, think beyond yourself 
Think even beyond them. And think of the glory of God. What a privilege that God's chosen us, Millwood, to display His glory, His gospel grace to the world. In one sense, your individual good works done to outsiders shows something of God's kindness to the world. That's true. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount. James says so as well. But your good works to others in the church, your unique love for one another, displays God's glory in a unique way. I wonder who you could apologize to in the church this afternoon. I wonder who you could forgive after the service this morning. I wonder if you could think of other ways to take steps toward unity, to squash anything that might even have the potential to grow into division. We have to take the offensive. We have to pursue unity. Division can undermine the gospel the message that we preach, and the truth that we believe. Division can undermine it and tell the world that we don't really believe it. But division can also harm the gospel in another way. Look at verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, the apostles say. Division, we see here, can also distract Division will distract the whole church from the gospel. But importantly, we see here, division will distract those who have been charged with teaching the word. A coach who's always dealing with cleaning up the locker room himself won't be able to help the whole team get better. A church that forces its teachers to divert all their attention away from studying and praying and preparing to teach will eventually suffer. The apostles have been called by Christ himself to preach the word. So while division will tear apart the church from within, as we've already seen, neglecting the word will erode the very foundation of the church. So Satan's one attack here has two effects. He's trying to create cracks in the building itself and the structure by creating division. And in the same move, he's trying to create cracks in the foundation. He's trying to distract the apostles from the word. Take away clear preaching, chip away at the soundness of their doctrine, keep the apostles from bathing their teaching in prayer, and pretty soon there won't be a church to divide. Serving tables isn't undignified. That's not what they're saying here in verse 2. It's not... They're not saying that's beneath us. It's just not what they've been called to at this time. The church needs people to serve tables, to figure out this situation, to lead in serving this physical need, and lead the church through this conflict. A disagreement about very physical and practical needs can harm the church, as we've seen. We need people to care for those physical needs. But more fundamentally... The church needs teachers of the word. The church up to this point in Acts 6 has existed without people set apart to serve tables. It's never existed without people set apart to teach and preach. 
But now the teachers are being tempted away from their role. So what do they do? Do they rebuke the Hellenists for complaining? Do they rebuke the Hebrews for overlooking their sisters in Christ? They choose to attack this division in a different way. Look at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the church solves this practical problem in a rather practical way. They divide the labor. They decide to set some apart to teach and some to serve widows. If we were to translate this more literally, the plan is for some to deacon tables and for others to deacon the word. Some deacon tables, others deacon the word. Deacon is just a transliteration of the Greek to serve or to minister. The church needs servants of the word, and the church needs servants of physical needs. This passage is beginning to teach us about how we should organize ourselves as a church. We don't rely on this passage alone. This passage is just one story about the apostles dealing with one situation. But as we move through the New Testament, we see two offices established that look very similar to these two. We see elders and deacons. If you're interested, you go to 1 Timothy 3 to see the qualifications for each of those offices clearly laid out. But here in this passage, before those offices are established, we see the church beginning to learn how to relate to its leaders and how to divide labor. We see the church learning about how to relate to its leaders and how to divide labor. So the first thing to notice is that the apostles are including the whole congregation in this process. The apostles lead, and the congregation approves. Look in verse 2. What do they do? Look back up in verse 2. They summon the full number of the disciples. Then if you look down in verse 5, we see that the apostles' plan pleased the whole gathering. Then the congregation, in verse 6, presents these men. They execute the apostles' plan. So there's a give and take here we see. We don't see the apostles commanding, the congregation begrudgingly going along. Neither do we see angry protests from some of the congregation. The spirits blessed this early church with a loving relationship between its leaders and the whole congregation. So whether it's here and it's the apostles and the table servants and the whole group of disciples in Jerusalem, or whether it's elders, deacons, and the congregation in our church today, or even a father, mother, and children, division of labor, levels of authority, and mutual submission and service is good. Even before the fall, there seemed to be certain roles assigned to Adam and Eve. Adam's charged with keeping and working. Eve's charged with helping. Now, after the fall, in the family and society around us, in the church, there are good roles, varying levels of authority given to different people and groups. And the church is no different. So here in Acts 6, we see the apostles leading, setting a plan, and the congregation giving approval. As the New Testament moves forward, 
we see a similar relationship between elders and the congregation. It's not a one-to-one correlation, but it's very similar. Elders lead and teach and do so with a real measure of authority. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For instance, Hebrews 13 says. So there's some real authority given to elders. But in some of the most important matters, it's the congregation who has final authority. Determining who is the church, for instance, who's in and who's out. Determining who's teaching, who's leading, who are the elders themselves. These are things that the New Testament gives to the congregation as a whole, not a certain body within the congregation. That ought to be a regular prayer for this church. A healthy relationship between elders and the congregation. Elders leading and teaching well with humility. We need prayers for that. Desperately. And a congregation following gladly and bearing responsibility that God's given us. Well, to help teachers and the body do this, God in his wisdom has also given deacons, ministers, servants. Again, here in Acts 6, I think we see a prototype for the office. I don't think we're necessarily seeing the office of deacon officially established, but it certainly shows us what the office will look like. What's the work that these men are called to in Acts 6? Well, most immediately, they're called to serve tables. They're called to care for the widows. It's interesting to note that the whole congregation chooses what seems to be seven Greek names to solve the problem. They choose seven Greek men. They choose men from the group who is probably less influential in the church. What a good example of honoring a weaker party, of continuing and counting others more significant than themselves. These Greek men are to lead in meeting needs of the most needy in the church, the Greeks and Jewish widows. That's the business they're called to go about doing. And that's why we have our deacons today over specific physical ministry needs. Someone needs to take care of practical things. Someone needs to care for the building of grounds. If the AC weren't working, we would not be able to gather. So as a congregation, we've asked Darren to lead and coordinate and make sure things around the building are functioning. Chris Smith is leading by serving us and handling all kinds of AV issues. Delmar's leading and organizing to make sure that we and guests are greeted warmly every Sunday. Each of these men and all the rest of the deacons here at the church are skilled in these specific areas and have proven time and again that they're willing to get their hands dirty and serve. But they're also great at leading us to meet those needs together. So Chris, for instance, has an AV team. He's leading well from Atlanta right now, where he's at an internship over the summer. Countless people have helped Darren with countless projects. They aren't only taking care of things that need to get done, The deacons aren't only taking care of things that need to get done themselves. They're helping us all to know how we can use our gifts to pitch in. Look back at verse 3. Look down at verse 3. What kind of people are the apostles telling the disciples to look for? 
They don't say, pick out from among you seven men who were waiters in high school. We want to make sure they know how to do this. No, they say pick out men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. This is reminiscent of when Moses is leading Israel to build the tabernacle. The passage in Exodus 35 that John read for us earlier. Exodus 35, to remind us, says, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. God filled Bezalel with his spirit to do the work of building the tabernacle. God fills Stephen and the others with his spirit to build up his church. He gifts them in a special way to do this job. Their work really isn't just serving widows. Their work was preserving the unity of the church so that it could continue to grow. So these men in Acts and all the deacons in church history that will follow them have to exhibit spiritual qualities just as much as physical qualities. They have to be faithful and godly as much as they need to know their way around a kitchen or a power tool. They have to know and believe the gospel so that they can see their work as an important part of preserving the gospel. They have to know and believe the gospel so that they can see their work as an important part of preserving the gospel. They're working for unity for the sake of the gospel. So that means they won't compete with one another or do anything that might harm the church's witness in their ministry. These servants have been filled with the Spirit, especially gifted by Him, to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ, to promote God's glory in the church. And though these men in Acts and deacons generally have been gifted in a specific way by the Spirit, every single member has the Holy Spirit and has the Spirit for the same reason. Every Christian's been born of the Spirit. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not indwelt by the Spirit of God. Every Christian's been called to, by God to work for the unity of the church. Every Christian's been called to work for the building up of the church and the spread of the gospel. But God's given specific gifts to specific people in specific roles in the church. Isn't that what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? He says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Later on, he says, for the building up of the church. We need one another. Even the apostles, I think they could do it all themselves, couldn't they? Even the apostles need other members of the church to help them. God's humbled us all by making us all need one another. He's also exalted us all because we all need one another. 
every member at Millwood Baptist Church is necessary. While God's given leaders in deaconing the word and leaders in deaconing specific physical areas, every single member is called to deacon, to minister or serve one another. It's the elder's job, after all, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, of deaconing. That means you, saint, are called to ministry. Some elders, Nathan and myself, in this church, by your generosity, have been set aside to devote ourselves to studying and praying full-time, as 1 Timothy chapter 5 says is wise to do. But we're all called to minister the word to one another, to speak the truth in love. Every one of us has the responsibility to help others in this church follow Jesus. Every single one of us has the responsibility of helping one another follow Jesus. We're all to be praying for one another. We're all to be discipling one another. That means taking time to meet with others throughout the week, either one person or a group of a couple people, to ask intentionally spiritual questions, to pray together, to encourage one another with gospel truth, even to correct one another if need be. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, Hebrews says, so that you will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need our fellow saints to do the ministry of encouraging us day after day. The Christian life is personal, but it's not private. We've agreed when we joined this church that the Bible calls us to open our lives to one another for our good and God's glory. We need brothers and sisters in this church to give us spiritual wisdom, to help us to see our sin, to help unfold the wonderful truths in the gospel that's scattered throughout God's word. That means discipling one another isn't an optional extra part of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. So come back tonight and hear Aaron talk about intentionally spiritual relationships. Aaron's going to be starting our members meeting tonight by teaching on intentionally spiritual relationships. I'm looking forward to it. I'm also looking forward to receiving new member directories with ways specifically we can be praying for and with one another and for the nations and get pictures of all of you that we can pray for. I like to do it every morning. We can do it at family worship if you want. We'll hear more about how we can use those to fulfill our church covenant later tonight. We're all called to minister the word to one another. And every one of us is also called to minister to one another's physical needs. We have to bear one another's physical burdens as much as spiritual burdens. I think the book of James is sufficiently clear on that. So if you're looking for something to do this afternoon between now and the members meeting, spending 15 minutes to read the book of James, and then another few minutes to prayerfully think about what God's calling you to do would probably be worth your time. God's given us to one another to care for one another. We need Ben caring sacrificially for Roy Christian right now, as so many others 
are doing. That's supernatural, spirit-empowered service that displays the unity achieved by Christ in his gospel. On a surface level, what do Ben and Roy Christian have in common? My guess is very little. Ben is putting Roy before himself. He's displaying the work of the Spirit in him so that others can see that. Praise God for Ben. Praise God for everyone who's contributed to any meal train. We need meal trains. We need Matt Ham and Michaela to go sit with Don Courtney while Jane's getting surgery. We need Lily to drive for hours every month to spend time with your children. We need husbands and wives to die to themselves and prefer one another. We need the countless acts of service that I and maybe no one else will ever know about that you'll receive no earthly praise for. We need people. We are people whose hearts have been changed by the gospel, who now care more about displaying God's glory in the church than about themselves, their time, their temporary entertainment and pleasure. So here's my encouragement to you this morning. Find someone who's not like you who you can serve. Find someone in this congregation who is not like you who you can serve. Maybe that means just sitting with someone on Sunday mornings who's alone. Maybe it's offering to pick someone up and bring them to church. Maybe it's inviting someone for a meal or even inviting yourself over to their house for a meal. What can I bring you for dinner this week? Spend time with others in the church who aren't like you. How else will we know if they're being overlooked? How will we know what physical or spiritual good we can do for them? Find someone who's not like you to serve. Do it for the sake of that person. Do it for the sake of God's glory. The result of people serving in this way, we see in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word increases. Priests, those in the temple who are making their living under the old covenant, are turning from the old to the new because of the witness of the community, because of the unity of this small community that's gathered in a corner of the temple. The gospel, the message, and the community produced by the message of the church is compelling enough to these priests whose whole identity was serving in the temple to turn from that work to the church. They were abandoning the very core of their identity to enter into a kingdom of priests in the new covenant alongside poor Greek widows. May God build up our congregation in unity and love, in teaching and in service, by the power of the Spirit, so that it's evident to all that He is our God and we are His people, so that we might be a light to the nations and see many turn from their old ways of life to a new way of life, a way of life that's promised in the gospel, a way of life 
that today pictures the heavenly community gathered around the throne that we'll all see not too many days from now. God's accomplishing his purposes in the church. Satan's attack fails once again here in Acts 6. Satan's unwittingly even strengthened the church against the next attacks. Soon he'll be attacking their doctrine. We'll see more theological controversy in the chapters to come, but but now the teachers are even more free than they were before to study. They're more equipped after this attack to handle the next. God's sanctifying his church through these trials. God's strengthening his church in unity. You see the wisdom and power of God using Satan's own attack to strengthen his church? God will call us all to account for the unity of this church. The elders and the deacons will be held especially responsible. But unity is a universal thing. We, the whole congregation, are called to unity. Will you answer that call? Will you work for that? Will you use your gifts to work for unity? Christ, the head of the church, has richly scattered gifts, unequally among all his members. He's wisely divided the labor so that no one member would be overburdened and no one member would be left out. The church, Bonhoeffer says, does not need brilliant personalities, but faithful servants of Jesus and the brethren. Thank God for the faithful servants sitting around us this morning. Thank God for his spirit. May he continue to work in us that we might glorify him in unity, in service, and the proclamation of his word. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you our one God who has eternally displayed your unity in Trinity, who is now displaying unity between Christ the head and we his body. Lord, we pray that you would continue to work unity in us, that we would more and more clearly exhibit the unity and reconciliation you have already accomplished in Christ on the cross. Help us to look to him and his glory as we do so. And equip us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.